This is Paul. As I mentioned in that last episode, the 2018 episode, the chat that I had with writer and producer and director Adam Stovall all about the movie Annihilation was only meant to last around 20 minutes. Instead, we chatted for an hour and a half about all things Annihilation and also his own film, A Ghost Waits. Now that one, it has its imminent physical release on Arrow Video. By the time you're hearing this, actually... I think it would have been out maybe a week, maybe just over. So yeah, we had this long chat. We also talked about probably a hundred other things. It was way too long for the 2018 episode, but there was way too much good stuff in it to chuck away a whole hour's worth and just keep a half hour stuff in there. So we're doing this. We've got a whole extra episode here, all about Annihilation, all about a ghost weights. Double win if you ask me. Now, just so you're aware, in the middle of the chat, we do take a break. And in that break, I place my stupid thoughts all about Ben Salisbury and Jeff Barrow's stunning score for this film. If you did listen to the 2018 episode, you would have already heard that. So if you wish, you can just skip to the end of that. It's not that long, but all the time codes, they're in the show notes. So scroll down, figure it out, skip along, and then you're back in the conversation. Now, before we do this, I just want to do a little bit of house cleaning. Please do not forget, if you're able to, I'd really appreciate you to rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Those five-star ratings really do help me out so much with the chance of this getting seen by new listeners. And I do know because I've had a couple of emails where people have said they just found us by searching the word horror in Apple. So again, thanks if you've already done that. And if you haven't, only takes a couple of minutes out of your life. Really appreciate it. But don't worry, I'm not giving up on you faithful horror heads out there that have been listening to me ramble on with these lists from day one. I bloody well love you. I won't forget you. Anyway, today I chat with Adam Stovall. He wrote, directed and produced the movie called A Ghost Waits. Now, I made sure that I didn't watch this and I've avoided spoilers as I pre-ordered that Blu-ray from Arrow Video. Uh, And as I said earlier, it's come out already just a few days ago now as you're listening to this, if you're listening on the day it comes out. Uh, Am I rambling? I think I'm rambling. But here's how this interview went down. As you know, I talk about it all the time. I'm a massive Arrow Video fan. I collect so many of these boutique label releases I think because I just love dissecting the extras and learning all about the process of cinema. Arrow is my favourite of the bunch. So whenever they do their announcements of what's coming up in the following month, I'm always dead excited. I've always got my wallet next to me. I'm not really interested in all the packaging side of things. I just want to see new content and I want to see all the extras. And then in late Feb or early March, I can't remember now, but Arrow announced they will be releasing a Ghost Waits as a physical product. I heard some really good things about this movie from my friends 
and also some of the critics that I really rate online, they were going in pretty deep about how much they loved it. So for me, it was a no-brainer. And then I watched the trailer and I got really excited. So I contacted Adam and I sent him a load of potential films to review and he got back and he chose Annihilation and then here we are. Boom! So this is it. Put the lead on your dog and get yourself walking. This is going to be a hefty conversation and a little trigger warning for you here. We do briefly cover mental illness in this chat and I know a lot of people hate listening to that sort of thing if they're struggling themselves. So yeah, just be warned. Enjoy it. This is me and Adam Stovall talking about Annihilation and a Ghost Waits. How you doing? Hey, Paul. I'm doing well. How are you doing? Uh, yeah, fantastic. Like we just mentioned the sea and things like that. Well, uh, I live really close to the sea, and it's one of the great things that I can do is just walk my dog to the sea during lockdown. And yeah, yeah. I've had a really good day today. You know, when you've just had a, a like, oh wow, that's a good day. So I'm really happy to end it uh, for me anyway over here. Right, talking to you. You know, years ago, I, uh, I was living with McLeod Andrews and we were living in Santa Monica and I was having a really bad day because um, we were putting, you know, we were trying to make a movie then and um, and just running into wall after wall after wall and hadn't quite gotten to the point where I could run through the walls yet. And I just, I felt awful. And then I remembered that if I walk seven blocks, the Pacific Ocean is right over there. And so I just put everything down and walked seven blocks. I was like, yep, this is better. Yeah, too right. <laughs> Too right. I asked you what you would like to to choose from uh, from this whole huge list. That was a hard choice too. There's some, like I looked at Mandy. It's like, oh man, I I want to talk about the chainsaw battle of my heart. Uh, but I no, I think Annihilation. It had to be Annihilation when I when I really thought about it. It's my favorite film from the year. It is really special although when you break it down it's not all that special it's a really weird one when you when you take it apart oh that makes sense that makes sense I've seen that before I've seen that before but when it's mm. when it's this big hole it's really interesting it definitely generates conversation and and makes you think whereas 
like I don't know several hundred slashes that I've seen in the past few weeks don't particularly do that so thanks right. for choosing this one thank you this was also one of my favorites from that year and but th- there was this thing I'd had this reservation in my head for so long. And a buddy of mine, it's his favorite movie of the year. It's his favorite year, probably his favorite movie of the decade. Like he loves wow. it. And we would have this come. Kind of, and it's one of those things where you like something, but you don't love it. And you're talking to someone who loves it. And it's just like, yeah, but, you know, and I, I had this reservation for a long time that I didn't feel like the filmmaking reflected the character's journey. Um, and like, as I, you know, it's like, it it took us five years to make our movie. And so as I progressed through that time, I was learning more and more, and I finally could put my finger on what I thought was the problem, which is that it's a very classically made film. You know, the camera is very, uh, it's very fixed. Uh, every now and then you might have a jib or a dolly, but you never, there's no handheld. And I thought it was really odd that there was no handheld with the characters kind of, um, breaking down a little, you know, and, and mm. losing it as they were, in, the longer they were in the shimmer. And so last night I watched it again to prepare for this conversation and it finally clicked into place why I was wrong. Because, and let me actually, because I texted my friend. So let me bring it up so I can say exactly what I said to him. Because I was like, okay, um, I think I finally let go of my reservation about the filmmaking not reflecting the character's experience because I realized that's not the point. Were it centered on their experience of the world, then it would implicitly mean that our experience is the most important. And obviously the whole movie is about how that's not true. Our experience exists on a spectrum of experiences with none weighing more or less than the others. Yes. That's what this movie is. And it's just like, my God, that it is just, it's an amazing piece of film. There are moments in it where you're looking at the screen and you could be just staring at a piece of classic art in a gallery. And there are others where you're on the edge of your seat and it pretty much could be the same fixed camera spot. And then all of a sudden you're terrified and you're wondering where the hell this is going to go next. Uh, all within the same frames. It's, it's very cleverly done, I think. Real, real expertise. Uh, with the cinematography and the, the shots are really clever. The way they approach the effects in, like to keep, to make them as practical as possible with some slight CGI augmentation. Uh, I watched, I, you know, I, I got the Blu-ray and I was watching all the special features last night and they actually used as, like they would build these silicone models of things of the of the alligator, you know, they had a silicone alligator so that they could put it into the water and have the actual ripples of what wow. an alligator of that size and that weight would make. So that when the CGI alligator is going in, you still have the practical um, consequences of the physical being, and it's just like shit. Like, man, Alex Garland is good at this. <laughs> that's so important because already inside the shimmer you're taken to another place another another realm things you've never seen before and you still need to be grounded in reality somewhere so that sort of thing yeah you're spot on it has to be done correctly and like you have to be grounded in reality but the film itself is really going out of its way to say that your reality is your reality and we may share in kind of a capital R reality, but no, like, but reality is as much a construct as anything else, you know, yeah. like, 
he he said something on a podcast when Alex Garland was on a podcast and he said, your sense of my perception is actually your perception of my perception. We can't actually conceive of anyone's object of uh, perspective objectively because it will always be colored by our pers- perception of it. And right. I was like, God, that's smart. Cause that's, I mean, I, I live in America and like, I was just like, well, thanks for explaining our political state. <laughs> you know, we can't even have it. Like it's, it's the thing, like when we have a conversation and like the best conversations that I have are, are kind of like this, like your best hope is to just go in saying, I'll never know what it is to live in your skin. So your doubts and your insecurities and your prides and everything else have nuances that you can't even fully articulate because it would be like describing the walls in your room. And most of us don't think to take into account the walls in our room when we recount our days. So it's that thing of like, I want to empathize and we want to empathize so badly that we anthropomorphize, you know, a toilet if you're in my movie or our stuffed animals or our cars or whatever like we will put a personality to anything that we interact with but we can never truly know anything other than ourselves and we might not even ever truly know ourselves and you couldn't say that if this guy was a hack you couldn't say yeah he has created this small body of work but at the same time it's vast like there is a vast scope in every film that he's done, and that's without even thinking about devs. Like, right. where where would you even begin? You would need several podcasts just to to <laughs> even get in episode one of that thing. Um, yeah, I am really intrigued by where he's going to go, and I read on IMDb that it's going to be a drama called Men. Now, do you know anything about that? Have you heard about no. this? No, but I'm in a pretty severe bubble these days, to be honest. <laughs> I wonder where that's going to go, because like, that's that's a step out of the box. How I so? How do you mean? Well, the drama elements within Ex Machina and um, Annihilation, they're all there, but you're also exploring uh, genre you're, uh, all the time. You're always yeah. in there. Uh, science fiction is so heavily laden and woven throughout his work, whereas... The description isn't drama, sci-fi, drama, horror, drama, or anything. Straight it's drama. Drama. Hmm. That is interesting, but I could I, I I see it as a pretty natural progression. I mean, he's he's used genre to tell stories for a very long time, and I mean, even Never Let Me Go, which he adapted, was a sci-fi story, just a much lower key of sci-fi, but like. You know, his focus, he's, you know, genre is just basically trappings. It's, you know, you're, you're, you have your story to tell and you want it to be as true as possible. But if, whether it's horror or sci fi or whatever, it that basically just tells you the language w- with which you're going to tell your story. Like these are the beats that have to happen. Um, I know on, on a Ghost Waits, like McLeod, more than once, <laughs> more than I care to admit, in fact, McLeod would have to be like, hey, we should probably have a horror beat now because we're making a horror movie. Like, oh yeah, right, we do need to do that. And yeah, I think, I mean, Ex Machina was an amazing film that you don't want to say like overachieved or outperformed, but like, I, you know, he has built his little community so perfectly that, 
yeah, you know, especially after devs, it, it seems like a natural progression to me. It's it's exciting. And you were right to bring up some of the old work that he'd uh, they'd written, um, because that is far more drama laden. Um, mm -hmm. And Never Let Me Go was, uh, oh. it, it's such a great tale and you couldn't inject too much right. of anything else because it might affect the, the story that you actually really want. You really want to be rewarded by an yeah. ending. I don't know whether you do get that reward at the end of the film. I think uh, you do. Yeah? That movie devastated <laughs> me. Yeah? I Yeah. I remember I saw it. I saw it at the Esquire Theatre in Cincinnati. I think I saw it at an advanced screening. And I remember when it ended, just being there and just like devastated, just crying. And this woman behind me just looks at her guy and not in an indoor voice goes, okay, so where's dinner? And I just wanted to turn around and be like, you shut up. <laughs> like he put us in a place and you live in that place. <laughs> wow. wow. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I loved it. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Oh my word. He excites me. He really does. Like, I, I just want to put that across to, to the listeners out there as well, that like, this is a director that I've really got my eye on. I'm really excited to see where it goes. And initially I was really disappointed with the, the drama thing. But as you mm. say, when you look back on what he's done previously, what he's written, I think we're in safe hands. I think he's not going to let us down. Yeah. Well, I mean, also, I, I think like, He's one of the few filmmakers currently working where you can definitely like whatever you're about to see, you haven't seen it before. Like he seems relentlessly curious and, you know, kind of lives to invent, you know, I, I mean, I, I don't know him. I, I, I only know kind of what I've read and listened to, but I would assume that he is a huge cinephile and you get, I get the sense, I'm gonna, I should stop using the royal you. I get the sense that when he is going in to make something, he wants to make something that he hasn't seen before. Um, now I might just be projecting because my whole kind of spirit in this endeavor is I wanna, you know, it's so much easier not to write than to write and not to make a movie than to make a movie that if I have an idea that's already been done, I would rather just pop some popcorn and watch it how it's already been done. I don't really start working until I don't think it works, which is to say, I don't know that it works because I haven't seen it work before. And I maybe flatter myself to think that uh, Alex Garland and I have at all similar approaches. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll be honest, there is a buzz um, about your film. You know, that initial buzz that you get that you're like, oh, the from the film festivals, this is, this is something you need to watch. Like put this on your list it's coming out next year. And that happened with him as well. So yeah, I'm excited. Like just, uh, I know we're going to talk a bit about it at the end, but I've ordered the Blu-ray. I've not seen the film yet. And oh, okay. Yeah, so I- You should have let me know. We could have gotten you a screener or something. Oh no, but I want to see it. Uh, well, okay. Yeah, I want to see the whole thing, you know, the package, the beautiful packaging, all those extras. Uh, oh my word, I cannot wait. I can't wait. I, I love that experience. Got the pre-order. So I appreciate that because like, you know, it, it was funny when we made the movie, I definitely had this idea that like, I may never get to make another movie. So what do I want to say? You know, you can't cram all of your ideas into one, but like, if I never get to do this again, what can I take solace in having done? And then, you know, we got very lucky and everything's gone really well. And once Arrow signed, uh, once Arrow acquired it, 
um, and wanted to commission new artwork. You know, the poster hanging over my yeah. shoulder is the old poster that I, uh, I commissioned a, a friend of mine, Julie Hill, to do. And I, I love it. And it's going to be on the reversible sleeve artwork blu-ray but um you know when arrow said they wanted to commission new artwork i put out a call on social media asking for female or non-binary graphic artists who love movie posters and sister hyde popped you know messaged me and what she did for this and she said like i kind of want to go for like a 70s paperback vibe and i just love what she created so much um and we've got, I mean, that's been like that this entire, you know, because then I was like, well, I may never get to begin our Blu-ray because physical media, you know, is yeah. kind of, you know, it's going, it's going, you know, it's, it's not what it once was. And so I was like, well, maybe I never get to make another Blu-ray. So I put so much into this one. There's three commentaries. There's eight cast and crew interviews. There's outtakes. There's Easter eggs. There's the, the, the Fright Fest TV and Q&A from the world premiere. There's so much um because it was just like again how can i take solace if i never get to do another so yeah i i hope you enjoy it i can't wait well, in that case as we've just sort of skipped i will come back to annihilation i promise but oh, i, I just, feel like we're just gonna skip around i yeah you know, let's do it months. i i want to <laughs> talk a little bit about it so with physical the media <laughs> oh, with sorry. physical media uh, we are uh, obsessed like me my friends uh the people in the horror community we are obsessed with getting those um, collectors Blu-rays. It's just one of those things. Yeah. Um, and I think sometimes I think we're single-handedly sort of keeping that whole thing alive. That if you go yeah. to the the local um, sort of record shops or video shops or whatever now, there's huge sections over here dedicated to Arrow, which is fantastic to see. It's so good. And as soon as I saw yours was coming out, I remembered from all the hype watch the trailer bang i'm in and i feel like oh i wish i hadn't watched that trailer and, <laughs> yeah because i don't want to you know how you don't want to spoil anything yeah. Uh, yeah. so i want to know how involved you are in a the trailer and how much say do you get in those extras going in i i've actually been very involved with this um so both mcleod and i tried to cut a trailer for the movie and we both failed we just couldn't get it all to work um and then arrow was like oh yeah we got a guy for that and he cut that and was like yep okay so and they would uh you know they would send us like okay here's the trailer and we would give notes um you know we had there was a huge concern of are we giving away too much we don't want to give and sure. there are some shots from late in the film but the, it, it was it became crucial to remember that they're basically visual non sequiturs if you haven't seen the movie you know they're just a cool image or they're just um an interesting image but if you've seen the movie you know plenty of people who, like watch the trailer who'd seen the movie were just like you're gonna you're, you're gonna give that away and it's like well they, <laughs> they don't know what it is they just know that it's there we did have some stuff cut because they wanted to include some shots where it's like, no, no, we can't, we can't go that far. <laughs> um, but yeah, we, we did a few, you know, they would, Jack Whiting is his name. Uh, the, the, the guy who who cut the trailer for Arrow, who just did an amazing job. Um, you know, he would send over a cut and we would watch it and give notes and he would address them and send the next cut. And we didn't have to go back and forth too many times, but yeah, we were, uh, we were very involved in that. And then as far as extras go, as you can see over my left shoulder, I love physical media. 
so I, I was like, I want to pack this thing. I want, and you know, the fact that it's a black and white film means that it takes up less space. So I can put even more on it. Let's go. Um, <laughs> and yeah, like, you know, but my friend loves, loves uh, bloopers. So like I, I had to make sure there was an outtake reel. I love commentaries. I didn't go to film school. Mm -hmm. My film school was uh, commentaries. And then I was a film journalist for a bunch of years. And then like YouTube, um, I taught myself to edit. And a lot of that was just watching YouTube. Wow. So yeah, like once they, you know, and, and it's Arrow, which is, you know, Arrow, Shout Factory, uh, Criterion Collection, like these Eureka over there, like, you know, these places that really do it upright. Um, I, I knew that we had a receptive audience. I knew that they weren't just going to want to put the movie and a trailer on a disc and call that a home video release. Mm, yeah, like some companies <laughs> that rhyme with Schmaramount. Um, and I don't know. Plus if I love something like I, what I, I remember like when I saw promising young woman for the next like two weeks, all I was watching was interviews with Carrie and Emerald, <laughs> you know, just like, I want to know everything. You know, I want to know the entire writing process because I'm not a journalist anymore. I can't just tell my editor like, hey, can I please talk to so-and-so mm -hmm. and then do a two-hour interview where I just annoy the hell out of them with exhaustive questions. <laughs> so yeah, I, I kind of, you know, I wanted to make a movie that I wished existed. And then when it was time to make a Blu-ray, it was the same philosophy. I, if I weren't the guy who made it, you know, I wanted the cover to be one that if I was just going through the store would stand out. I would say, oh, that looks interesting. I'll grab mm -hmm. that. And then you look at the special features, you flip it over, you say, okay, what you got? And, you know, sometimes it's like, you know, uh, the, the special features are like the movie, you know, a, a 1080p. And it's like, yeah, that's just the movie. You don't have to tell me that that's on it. I assume that Obi. you know how to do that. But I was like, yeah, this has to just be so many things. And Arrow was like, I mean, it felt like we were trying to top each other, you know, trying to uh, come up with the, you know, like, oh, and, and a video essay. And I was like, you want to do a video essay? We're going to get this person. Uh, <laughs> this is great. Yeah, it was so exciting. Um, oh, I can't wait to do it again if I'm so lucky. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, Ghost Weights comes out two days after this podcast comes out. So happy May, y'all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> How weird we're recording this in March, but yes, <laughs> it's something that I'm so looking forward to. It's exciting for me as well. I, like I said, I was a journalist for years and it was so much fun to just like, <laughs> excuse me, I have to go call Wes Anderson for an hour. Um, you know, it was so much fun. And like, I'm, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of saying thank you. And you know, I've, I've struggled with uh, depression and anxiety and suicidal ideation, like pretty much my entire life. And it's been movies consistently. It's been movies that pulled me out of that, that made me feel less alone. Not to say exclusively, there's some great people in my life, but those who also struggle with this know it's really hard to ask for help. And so I couldn't, I didn't always have the words to say like, hey, I'm struggling, but I could go watch Pulp Fiction again. Or I could go watch Back to the Future again, or you know, like that was always there. And so that. then having made something, it's like now I just thank I'm thanking everybody for giving it any time at all. <laughs> this is incredible. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go back uh, to Annihilation. Yes, uh, and then we'll finish up with the Ghost Waste. It'll be so neat and beautifully packaged. I promise you, you'll be great. I, I want to just mention the the casting, the choice mm. of having a team of women rather than men. 
all the men have failed. So, right, we're going to put put together this crack team of women uh, to go into the shimmer. Do you think it could have worked with men? Do you think that the fact that it was women, do you think that was they were chosen for a particular reason? So the book on which this is based, the gender of the characters is never revealed. They don't even have names. They're just referred to as their jobs. Okay. Um, And if I'm remembering correctly, because it was late last night, but I think Garland said that, you know, most of the time, like nine out of 10 is even a conservative estimate. 99 times out of 100, you know, if not higher, like it's men and there might be a token woman. Mm-hmm. and he just he he thought he had the idea or he had the thought that what if it was a team of women and he emailed uh jeff vandermeer who wrote the books um well wrote specifically wrote the book that this is based on the others had he was writing them while this was being made wow. um yeah well i prepare for this stuff yeah. I, I do i do my research um but jeff said oh that sounds right like that would not be a betrayal of the spirit of this um but this is really interesting and this gets into a, a, sub, a subject that fascinates me and is kind of a because of what i'm working on right now is an acute um curiosity sure it wasn't that he's a guy wanting to write women for like the the challenge air quotes challenge of it you know I know a lot of guys, I know a lot of male writers who, well, actually, I wouldn't even say I know a lot of male writers. I know some male writers who write women because they think it's like a feather in their cap that they can. Um, I And the reason I say that this is a curiosity of mine right now is that I'm writing something and it's predominantly female. Pretty. And I didn't realize that because um, I, I just started writing it. I had the idea and I just started writing and the pers- the character started talking and they were a woman. And it was right. never really a conscious choice. The only conscious choices I've really made are their names. Um, some of which are kind of a game to me and some of which are just names that are of people that I want to, you know, want to, to live on if only on somebody's Blu-ray shelf. So um, in the case of Annihilation, because the story is about self-destruction um, and its various forms, one of the really cool things about telling a story through through women, through female characters, or characters who identify as female, is that when it's men, and you kind of see this in the videos of the, you know, of the previous thing. And I would also yeah. say, you know, yeah, all the men failed. The women failed too. One person made it out of this. And <laughs> like, we can debate what, you know, her, her state upon leaving. But um, they, there's a humility that for a man to be humble in a story is like a choice, you know? Um, I think about like True Detective or something where it's just like about what it means to be a man. And it's so annoying. Um, I also just think we should be making more stories that, you know, that center on women because there's enough about men. And like, you can literally tell, look at Ghostbusters. You could tell any story and just by centering women in it, it's going to be novel. It's going yeah, to bring something yeah. new and fresh. Um, you know, we have exclusively mined, we being men, have exclusively mined ourselves for stories for so long that at this point, just putting a woman in there 
is like, oh, hey, I haven't seen this before. And then it's something that you've definitely seen before. So yeah, I, I think that like it allowed him to, uh, to explore emotionality without having to like put capital letters on it. Um, but it also was, it was also just more interesting. And it, it contributed to being something that we hadn't seen. It does make me ask that question. Why do you think? And you're, I wouldn't have asked that if it was men. You know, it would have just been, okay, another film about men. And it yeah. puts it out there. And I was thinking to myself, well, maybe there was a, a reason that he did this. Because like a huge difference is a woman has a womb. Men don't have a womb. Women can create. And so does the shimmer. Like inside the shimmer, it creates new life. Uh, you know, there is cell division. So maybe there's this, this a binding thing. When you then think about this, and this is really what's so great about this movie is that like, it kind of penalizes you for being literal minded. So as, as I said before, you know, the point of this movie is that there is no default perspective. You know, the, the human perspective is not the right perspective in this. It's just a perspective which is really hard for an audience because an audience needs to follow somebody and have like a good and a bad. And there's just, there isn't really a bad guy in this movie. Um, he talked a lot in a, in the special features about like, you know, the galactic federation of planets and like, yeah, they, the, they want to go out and spread their like, Oh, we've evolved and you can evolve too. Well, if you think about it, the aliens in this could very easily be the galactic federation from where they, Come, where they're just here to be like, hey, you know, we'd like to share our evolution with you. But the way that it happens is contrary to what we perceive as how our world functions, even though it isn't, it just looks different. And that's why they're the antagonist to us, because they mm -hmm. look different, which is a huge thing. Ventress wants to face it. You want to fight it. But I don't think I want either of those things. But like, yeah, if it had been men, you wouldn't have thought to ask because it's women you thought to ask. That, that itself speaks to a default perspective. You know, I, I didn't put my pronouns on my Twitter bio for a long time because I'm he, him. You look at me, you know I'm a he, him. And it wasn't until somebody was like, right, but that's default thinking. And if you, if you do this as well, you normalize and it, the default widens. It's no longer default, you know, because sure. we've normalized a spectrum of... Um, realities yeah yeah it beggars belief that when i go through my my favorite films how the majority of them are ones that heavily feature women and yet the majority of films are not women focused it's very it's very odd and like you know where's the female shawshank redemption why does it always have to be caged heat you know mm -hmm. like i mean even <laughs> stuff as simple as that just like yeah, it's, it's really strange what we have. And I mean, it's only strange because we're at a point now where we recognize the strangeness. Or I shouldn't say that. It only stands out as strange now that we're at a point where we can recognize the strangeness. It was strange at the time, but we didn't notice it. That like what we branded as a male story and a female story. And, you know, we're finally starting to see that gender is a construct and that there isn't a male story or a female story. Or maybe there is, maybe I'm using the wrong words. But yeah, it, you know, hopefully we're getting there. Hopefully, I mean, 
there's amazing female filmmakers out there who, you know, some feel the need to make a capital F female film and some do not. And like, that is what uh, normality is. That's what equality is, is, you know, like I, I think like Melissa uh, McCarthy said one time, like real, real equality will mean that a woman can make a shitty movie and then make another one. Because <laughs> plenty of guys have. <laughs> uh-huh. Yes, there is a, a reaction as well to the horror in this that made me think, well, there is no difference here between how a man would react and a woman would react. And then it got you thinking, well, of course there isn't. <laughs> you know, people react. And, yeah. and I'm, I'm specifically talking about the alligator and the bear scenes. The injection of horror all of a sudden is there where it hasn't been there before uh, in his filmmaking. It has in places, but not like this. You've got this overarching... Uh, sort of creepy vibe going on and then all of a sudden you've got this visceral horror i'm right about the refractions weren't i yeah i checked my blood last night it's in me it will be in all of us It was so strange hearing Shepard's voice in the mouth of that creature last night. I think as she was dying, part of her mind became part of the creature that was killing her. Imagine dying frightened and in pain and having that as the only part of you which survives. I wouldn't like that at all. Do you think that it, it actually achieved its goal in uh, oh, yeah. being scary? Because I've got my opinion. My opinion is the alligator, not so much, but the bear freaked me the hell out. The alligator works on a visceral level where, like, if that shit is charging at you, it's terrifying. But, like, you can't unpack the alligator too much. That's, and, and which is, I think, part, like a structural thing. You know, it's the first monster. Um, it's the first thing that really tells you like, you know, cause they, they just noticed like, Hey, the flowers are different. They're different. Like they're all the same branch. So like, hold on a second. And then a shark alligator comes at you and you're just like, well, shit. Um, <laughs> Welcome to the movie. Yeah. The bear though is fascinating. And like the bear can be unpacked because, you know, there's that line of like, um, Oh God, she says, uh, imagine it, you're dying, you're terrified and oh, what is it? You're afraid and something else. And that is what carries on. Like your fear of dying is the thing that endures, which like, I just had to pause. I was like, Shh, oh boy, that's really good. And also like, as a guy who made a ghost movie, like, yep, uh, that, that's how, that feels familiar. But like, the bear itself has been um, changed so much. You know, it has been adapted and it has been amalgamated. And, you know, when you look at the design, you have a few different skulls. You have human teeth inside the mouth behind the bear teeth. Mm-hmm. And it carries with it the wails of its victims. And it makes you wonder about its victim. Like, it's a bear, bear gonna bear. But like now it carries the, 
like the consequences of that. So what is scary to us? Like, cause if it's a bear attack, like I've seen plenty of movies with bear attacks and yeah, it's, 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 it's the, it's the alligator, it's visceral terror and then it's done. But like this thing, the whole, like you first hear shepherd, you know, and you've got the one character who's like kind of starting to doubt and like she hears Shepard who's like, well, maybe she is alive. And then that thing walks in and, you know, it just, it, you know, in the filmmaking, it's great. I mean, they, you know, they used a lot of practicals and, um, and, and they, I really recommend the special features on the Blu-ray. They get into the stuff granularly and it's mm, chef's kiss. Um, But it's so smart. And it's never, it's such a perfect balance of emotion and idea where, yeah, I know plenty of people that like, well, that's the scariest thing I've ever seen. And then two years later, you're talking about it and it's like, oh my God, you know, the bear's just going about its day. It's hungry. There's food there. It eats. And now it's a walking, you know, screaming <laughs> paragon of fear and destruction <laughs> like oh poor bear <laughs> <laughs> Too right. it's it's really fascinating because if it had just rushed on to the following scenes i yeah. don't think it would work so much but it gives the audience a little bit of time after that to process it there's a little bit of quiet in the film and you can what the hell have we just seen and i love that that's really hard to do too um there's a you haven't seen the movie so i won't i'll do my best to not spoil it <laughs> uh there's a shot in the movie that was one of the one of the two things like the you know the first two things that i thought if i can land this punch i've got a movie and you know you write it you shoot it you get into the editing and i i edited the movie and i mean you're playing with shards of time you're playing with a fraction of a second but it is how long do we hold this shot to let the punch land, but not dwell on it, you know? Yeah. Because we got to move. We got to move. We don't have that long, you know? Um, especially with a movie like this, I don't have two hours. I don't even have 90 minutes. I got, this is a 79 minute movie for like a good reason. Um, <laughs> it did not work when it was an hour and 50 minutes long. <laughs> uh, but like, yeah, we're, we're, we're speeding through stuff. And then the confidence it takes to say, okay, we're going to slow down for a second because this is something that really needs a, a hat on it. Um, and some things you don't need to, to, to spend time. Some things the hat is there and the audience gets it. But when you have an emotional um, gut punch, it is. How long do you let that pain sit before you move on to something else? And it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's really incredible. The people that can do it, I'm just in awe of people that can do it consistently. And Garland, I mean, Ex Machina has him. You know, Devs like yeah, he's just he's so he's so attuned to the emotionality of his his stories. Yeah. I think what we need to do right now is talk all about this incredible soundtrack that backs up the movie.
two people scored this movie, Jeff Barrow and Ben Salisbury. Or if you're looking at the album cover like I am right now, it says music by Ben Salisbury and Jeff Barrow. Maybe you've got to put it in that order for a reason then. I don't know. Regardless, this is fantastic. When this soundtrack landed on Spotify, I listened to nothing else for five days straight. And that happens now and again. It also happened when I first heard Under the Skin, uh, the soundtrack to It Follows, of course. And then it happened again with that film Arrival. And when that happens, I, I just love it. I get totally lost in music for, for days at a time. I think when you find one of those, that's the reason why I like to put all this chat about the soundtracks on here. It can sometimes just make the world of difference, not just to the film, but to your life. And that might sound like, oh, that's a sweeping statement, but it's not. As I say, for five days, I was just absorbing this. I was obsessed. I loved it. Sometimes a soundtrack can just simply sweep you up into the other, whether it's part of the movie or whether it's stripped of its cinematic visuals. You just pump it into your ear holes and you become one with it. And what you just heard was a snippet of a piece called For Those That Follow. Now that is a track that beckons you to take your entrance into the shimmer, but with great caution. It's a moment where you know that this is as alien as you can get. It's a freaky warning about what's coming up. It really sets that scene just as you would want it to. But my favourite on here is an odd choice. It's called The Bear. Now, this part of the film in The Hand of Lesser Composers would just be a bombastic and shrill noise to accentuate that immediate horror that the cast are in. But Barrow and Salisbury, they're concerned here with melancholy. They linger on the uncanny. They seem to love that uniqueness of the animal-human hybrid. Just listen to this. comes from the most terrifying, the most sort of cliched, scary moment of the film. I love the way that they span that on its head and just subverted everything you expect from horror. So yes, okay, so this is still on Spotify and you can buy the soundtrack on vinyl for a pretty penny still. Either way, it delivers, it always delivers. Don't miss out. Well, I watched this with my wife. And my wife was completely game until the ending. She was not sure from the uh, the, the mirrored dance. So that scene, I, I get, we can spoil. Mm. Uh, this, this people will have watched this film yeah. before listening to this. But from that moment on, she she was no longer particularly on board because it as just, of the dance. Uh, yeah, as of that moment, because okay. it had gone too far for her. It had gone too far into sci-fi. I think. 
Oh, okay. That's interesting. What is your wife generally like in her stories? Uh, heavy drama. Heavy drama? drama. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. Like I'm... undiluted heavy drama though. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and she's a comedy girl as well. Like I'm so happy she puts up with all these <laughs> horrors. I make her watch. Um, Some of them are quite funny. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I loved the ending. As as soon as that happened, any other things I weren't 100% of before, I was completely on board from that moment onwards. From the sure. approach to the sort of the, the, the entrance of the cave, whether there's skeletons outside, my mind's just thinking of a thousand things. Who's that? Yeah. Why, how did that happen? What the hell are you doing going in there? From that moment yeah. onwards... Um, I, I was completely sold. And I've watched that part several times more than the film as a whole. Your first viewing of this, has it changed your opinion of that ending? Now you've seen it several more times, listened to the commentaries. Um, how did you feel the very first time to now? The very first time I saw it, and I remember very clearly because uh, I saw it at AMC Newport on the Levee, which is in Newport, Kentucky. And it... Um, it's an entertainment complex that sits like on the Ohio river. You saw it on the big screen. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh wow. Okay. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, no, I go way back with Alex Garland. Like I remember the beach being like, I think I like this guy. Uh, <laughs> so saw it on the big screen and I remember walking out in a daze and you know, the, you know, you walk out, I walk, there's a pedestrian bridge right next to it. So I walked over that into downtown Cincinnati. And at some point I realized I was in a part of downtown I'd never seen before. Cause I was just thinking about the movie and not where I was going. And suddenly I look up and I'm like, where the hell am I? And it, like, I didn't even recognize the street name. I'm like, Oh boy. So I, you know, looked up and saw a skyscraper. I, rec I recognized and like went in that direction. Um, but I, I love the ending. Now, I will say, the balance of emotionality and idea, not in perfect harmony in that, I, feel, I don't feel like. The, it's so weighted to the idea. And his whole, his whole approach of wanting to make something truly alien. You know, most films, most alien films, alien invasion films, um, you know, the alien is still perceptively human uh, in their form, in their conduct, in their language, um, you know, they they feel when they introduce themselves, uh, they they'll say what they do, which is always a word that we know. Uh, why, if you've mastered space travel, are you still calling it a botanist? Um, so his idea of like, I want to make something that is truly alien, and again, in the special features, they get into the concept art, or the the conception of the alien, and how in math. There is a, there's a, there are ways um, to kind of create something like that that is both patterned and chaotic. You know, that it, it never stops moving and you cannot predict how it's going to move, but there are also patterns to it. So I, oh, I, I adore the ending. It, I've also watched it more times than I've watched the, the full film. The, <laughs> the music, the just the awe of it, the awe of it. It's all is hard to do. And you've got a giant screen and like, you know, hopefully you have some money that you can, you can augment, you can, you can make a really astounding image and, and sound the, the cocktail of that. Um, and then, yeah, like by that point, I'm just like, 
my mind is blown and I love everything that's happening. And then the mirror dance happens and I, I keyed in quickly that like, oh, they're just mirroring her movements. Like they're not, um, it is not attacking her. It's doing what she's doing. You know, um, did you see, have you seen Arrival? Yeah, yeah. Arrival's probably my favorite alien invasion movie just because it's so about like, we make everything worse. Like somebody shows up and we just assume they're here to hurt us. And it's like, well, that's a weird assumption to make. You know, like how often do you go to somebody's house to kill them? (laughs) You might need to borrow some flour, but you might also just be going to hang out. Like, why would you assume that if somebody, you know, if we found life, if we found, you know, we're sending all this shit into space. If somebody were to like respond and say, yes, hi, we're here. Do we go immediately looking to kill them and take over their planet? Or we do, or do we go to ask some questions and talk? Of course. And it's so like movies like this and, you know, Annihilation has a much more genre, you know, there's a lot more action to it. So you're going to have the fights you're, you know, I'm not sure a single gun is fired in Arrival, um, but I just loved how it made its point of they're just here. And then, of course, you know, I, I noticed this last night. She recognizes that and immediately finds a way to use it to destroy it by putting the grenade in its hand. Mm-hmm. And like, even when she understands that it doesn't actually mean her harm, she still has to destroy it. And, you know, this is, and again, this movie penalizes you if you're literal minded, that's the metaphor, it's self-destruction. She's having to destroy an older, uh, uh, you know, the previous iteration of herself in order to be somebody that she and Kane can be together. Kane had to do the same thing. You know, she, she had her affair and the only way for him to be with her is to kill the part of himself that saw that as a deal breaker. You know, do you love her more than you than you are ad- addicted to the idea of what a relationship and a marriage looks like? That was fascinating. I think that uh, the the key there to both arrival and this is communication. Um, yes. And I think as soon as that starts to break down, as soon as panic sets in, as soon as uh, unlateral thinking uh, arises mistakes are made both films you're totally right it, it communication is key here and i when we go into that cave i don't feel the the malice from the alien it's never evident it's down for you to decide and i guess we can only decide from the previous uh, things on tv that all the the culture that we've already absorbed which is of course aliens kill let's kill you know, yeah. So may, maybe that that's put there on purpose. Maybe like because as you, if you watch the film scene by scene, the the only malice there is when she is pinned up against the wall and the things quickly, you mm-hmm. know, turn to panic. We're at the end of the film now, and I still don't know if there is even a side to choose here. And you know, how do you know that it's malice that's crushing her against the door? She's trying to get out. It's mirroring her. It doesn't know its strength. It doesn't know, like, yeah. you know, I don't think there is malice. I think it is, again, just kind of reflecting back at her what she's doing. And it doesn't have the understanding that she does because it's a whole new world to the alien. It's, it's really it's well having to use hands for the first time. I mean, damn. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Yeah. 
everything's new i i annoy the living shit out of my friends often because like i'm a very existential person um and a lot of our a lot of conversations that i like to have and and some i I found the friends who were down for it but it's just like yeah time is a construct there's no it's only 2 52 p.m here uh because we all like agree it is because we have like we have to have meetings and stuff Mm -hmm. um you know so it's it's a system and and you know we're coming out of a year where the world kind of was had to confront how many systems it just allows to occur you know how many things yeah. it does out of habit how how much comfort is a precedence you know i thought it was really interesting you know here in america and I, it's not just here but you know this is my experience uh that like so many people confuse comfort with liberty you know, oh, I don't like that. So it automatically is an attack on your freedom. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to double back for a second, you know, and, and at the great risk of being reductivist, you know, the idea of, well, the movies that we've seen about aliens tell us that they're going to come to kill us. Well, that's the same as the propaganda films about uh, the, black, black, the black person in America that used to be produced in the, the 50s and the 40s and yeah, yeah. 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s. Um, you know, it's <laughs> like if you don't, I grew up in Northern Kentucky. Most of my life, I wasn't around a lot of Black people. Um, you know, I would go and visit uh, people, you know, relatives and, and people in Chicago. And obviously, there were a lot more uh, Black people there. Uh, I had a Black neighbor. Uh, black family lived next door. Uh, by the time I went to high school, I was finally, you know, it wasn't exclusively white, but. You know, so I think about that. I think about that kid a lot. And, you know, if, you, if you're growing up and everyone looks like you and then you turn on the TV and the TV is saying, people who don't look like you want to murder you. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, that's how that happens. <laughs> you know. Um, it's not even five steps away, is it? It's, it's the not. next step. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. and it's, and I, I think it's our job to be empathetic. And we don't get to pick, we don't get to pick and choose who we're empathetic with. Um, you know, you take something like Make America Great Again, all they're really saying is, let me think less again. Like, I, I, I'm tired of having to learn new shit every day, um, even though they are all people who will have like knit stuff and cross knits in their home that say, every day I learn something, but it's not useful stuff you know they don't want to learn new pronouns they don't want to learn that there's a whole part of a spectrum they weren't aware of and so what they look at as greatness is just comfort they were more comfortable then but their comfort great came at the great expense of someone else you know how many you know these alien this this alien life form comes to earth and it's cell division and they're able to regrow but like that that alligator died what happened to the alligator and was it re-subsumed uh, into the alien form or is it dead? Is that just a dead alligator body with all of the changes that it had made and all the stuff that it had kind of taken into itself? What are we doing to ourselves when we exploit others at, at, at their great expense, at, their, at the cost of their lives perhaps, and in fact, at the cost of their entire culture? And you, and that's just a very selfish way, like saying, what are we doing to ourselves? What we're doing to them, far worse. But there are consequences far beyond what we even see in the moment. Uh, yeah, and, of course. 
you know, it, it's like what's happening right now. Um, I don't know how well, if you follow American culture, but while uh, one political party is passing legislation to help uh, American citizenry uh, recover from this past year, another is complaining that six Dr. Seuss books are no longer in circulation and Potato Head no longer has a fixed gender. Mm. And it's just like, baby, what did you did? Like, who hurt you? <laughs> Why? Are these the shits that you give when there's such an inconsequential shit? Um, but they give that shit because it's inconsequential, because there's always going to be something else to get mad about. And they don't want to think about the, the actual harm that they're doing because they're a good person. You know, they're not a bad person. They don't wish anyone any harm, except for all the harm that they callously wish um, and then don't want to talk about. Yeah, you know. I, I just saw on Twitter when I like went to like check the, the the Zoom link that Prince William said that the royal family is definitely not racist. And it's like, you know what? I'm not sure a monolithically white entity gets to decide if they're racist or not. If a black person is telling you you're being racist, you might want to listen. <laughs> but they don't want to. And yeah. they're the royal family. When the hell do they have to do anything that they don't want? I mean, the crown would say constantly because, I don't know. Hey, remember okay. when you thought this conversation would be 20 minutes long? <laughs> Yeah, I like it. Oh, do you know what? I'm thinking maybe uh, right now it was going from my head a minute ago. Oh, I could put this out as like a single episode sort of thing um, and just deep dive. Yeah, it's about an hour. Sure. Isn't it? Yeah, why not? Um, I mean, if any movie, you can deep dive into Annihilation. Because of the job you're in as well, this is, I think, the key question that I really want to know from all the ones that I've um, spoken about. Sure. So you're an indie filmmaker. Yes. I personally think that it must be a heavenly time if you're an indie filmmaker at the moment because of the way the, the pandemic has sort of obliterated cinema. <laughs> There's a lot of options out there that weren't there before. I think it must be great to have all these opportunities open for you. I read somewhere, someone said, the thing about 2020 and COVID is that it didn't blow any holes through walls. It just poisoned the air already blowing, already passing through the holes that were there. The problem, I do think it's a problem, but like the, the death of cinema, you know, is a, is an ongoing conversation and has been for a while. You know, it started with like, it might've started before VCRs, but I remember VCRs was like, this is gonna, oh, television. The, like the moment like television started, this sure. is gonna kill going to the movies. And it didn't. You know, and then VCRs. Oh, we can watch movies at home. This is going to kill the theater experience. And then, you know, streaming and everything. It's not that it kills it. It just makes it a much more niche thing. You know, there will always be people like us who love going to the movies. Um, it's my preferred way. You know, I got my first dose of the vaccine on Tuesday and I like had to stop myself from just like running to the AMC that's open. And like, I'm like, I don't care. I'll see Tenet or something. Like, I just want to see a movie. And I was like, oh, I should probably wait. Till I have the second dose. <laughs> and, um, but so I, I'm not concerned about like silver screen cinema because even if a lot of the companies die, cinema isn't dead. There's still going to be film societies. There's still going to be film clubs. There's still going to be, you know, you they won't be as plentiful. You won't have theaters on, you know, every couple blocks. But I'm also not a big fan of capitalism. So to me, a corporation doing marginally worse is not a devastating thing. 
so in the movies that I want to see, well, when I lived in Cincinnati, a lot of the movies I wanted to see didn't play there. So I could only see them online or once they hit DVD and then Blu-ray. Now I live in New York where everything plays and it's just the best. You know, I, I belong to like a few things where you just like pay a monthly subscription fee and you can just go pretty much as much as you want. Brilliant. Thank you, MoviePass, for letting everyone know that that was a, a, a viable model if you just paid more than $10. As a filmmaker, I want people to see the movie. Okay, so specifically your question was as an indie filmmaker. So let me go there because I don't know what Chris McQuarrie has to live with. And I'm certain, you know, it's like, I mean, you saw with Christopher Nolan, like he was just like, there's no chance in hell you're putting Tenant on streaming. Like it's like you have uh -huh. to play theaters, Yeah, you know? Um, but like we made a movie for less than the cost of a base level Mercedes. It it does not cost a lot of money. Wow, um, okay. And the really nice thing of making something for a low five figure budget is that you don't have to worry about the four quadrants. You don't even have to worry about one quadrant. You can make a movie for like nine people. Um, I've, I've said this before, but like there's a, a musical called title of show. And in that musical is a song called nine people's favorite thing. I'd rather be nine people's favorite thing than a hundred people's ninth favorite thing. Um, so we got to make something that was very genuine and very personal. And I got to, talk about um, depression and, and, and suicidal ideation in a way that I'd never seen done before um, because I got to talk about my specific experience of it. JJ um, uh, Abrams is in the special thanks because he gave me a piece of advice years ago when I interviewed him for Super 8. Um, and it was because I asked him like, when you made Lost, like before Lost premiered, it's not like we were all clamoring for an hour drama about a time traveling island. How do you do that? And he said, you have to have faith that you're not alone in the world. If you want to see something, someone else wants to see it too. And I have carried that with me. That's just my North Star of what do I want to see? I'm not alone in the world. Um, now, you can't be completely myopic. You know, it does. It should be in a shared language. Sure. But, <laughs> but yeah. Um, so I don't really worry about independent film. I mean, it's getting a lot harder to make them, um, you know, between money being harder to find and the distributors uh you know drying up i mean it's it's a lot harder to do that but access to the equipment has never been so democratized access to the audience you know you just gotta get me eyes but you you know you can make my friend a goldfarb made a movie called the horror at gallery k that i recommend people if you like my movie a black and white horror movie about relationships i recommend his movie a black and white horror movie about relationships it's on prime you just have to search for it but the horror at gallery k k-a-y they didn't have the luck that we had where we were acquired by a distributor so they just put it on prime you can do that you know if you want to make a movie there's literally nothing stopping you you know i mean it doesn't cost nothing but you know, it depends on the kind of movie you want to make. You know, if you're if you're just looking to make a first film, understand that the bar the bar you have to cross to make your first film is that you make it. You have to you have to finish it. But if you want to shoot it on your phone, it's I mean it's going to look like it was shot on a phone, but okay. Or you can download an app and get the adapters and stuff and make it. You know, like Soderbergh does. Sure. Um, but you can edit. I I, I edited the movie on my laptop. Um, now 
you can't get a base level laptop. You, you know, my laptop cost me $5,000 because it needed a specific, specific video card and all these things. So it doesn't cost nothing, but you can make a movie for less than a car. Lots of people, you know, I don't know, lots of people do, but McLeod, uh, you know, I'm, I don't, the, the, I won't say the precise budgets, but the first two movies he made with Perry and Evan did not cost a lot of money, you know? The obstacles aren't there like they used to be. Um, we are our own obstacles increasingly. So I'm excited about it, but I also didn't come up through any sort of like uh, establishment where, okay, well, I'm gonna write this script. I'm gonna write a couple scripts for other people. And then that's gonna get me, uh, like maybe a producer will be like, okay, this person knows what they're doing. We'll throw a couple million, you know, and just see what happens. Like that doesn't happen uh as much anymore but like i never expected it to you know but i also didn't even expect this to happen like people from the uk wanting to like get on zoom with me and talk about shit like this is all christmas so i think a lot of it is it comes down to the independent filmmaker themselves and what they're expecting and what they're okay with and what are you okay with? Are you okay with potentially losing some of those big blockbusters, some of those annihilation uh, effects? Or is it something you don't mind losing just to get this huge avenue out for the bigger ideas, but smaller budget filmmakers? I mean, it all comes back to like the story that you want to tell. If I wanted to tell something that required big effects, then yeah, you have to, you know, I, I mean, it's, it's Annihilation, I don't know how much you know about its release, but like it was a very fraught release because mm. Paramount felt like they'd basically just been flipped the bird by the filmmakers. You know, they thought they were buying a movie star vehicle, sci-fi, you know, like they didn't think they were buying a treatise on self-destruction. <laughs> and you know, and how much of that was Garland not saying certain things or them projecting and like, you know, I mean, because he seems to have had a pretty clear view of what he wanted to make. And I don't know if like, in order to get the budget that he needed, he didn't tell them everything, or he did tell them everything. And you know, this wasn't included in the Blu-ray. Uh, and he hasn't really talked about it in any of the interviews that I've watched. But, you know, yeah, if you if you want to make something for a seven figure budget, then you have to incorporate or you have to make it accessible to a seven figure audience. In the case of uh, A Ghost Waits, you know, I'd written a script some years back that people liked, but we couldn't raise enough money. And so then I'd written another script that I was like, well, this will be super easy to make. Um, and we couldn't raise enough money. And then I worked, I was second AD on a feature called Split which is not the M. Night Shyamalan film, but a bowling romantic comedy written and directed by Jamie Buckner. And the amazing part, and that was a crucial part of my film education, was having a front row seat to see where money goes. Where does money go? Like, where does money have to go? And where does money go out of habit? And after that, I remember talking to McLeod and saying like, okay, what do we need for a movie? We need a, we need recording elements. We need a camera that's going to visually record and microphones that will, you know, uh, record the audio. We need people to play a scene and we need a place for the scene to happen. And that's pretty much it. 
Um, and so that's how we approached the budget was, okay, I can get this amount of money. The really stupid, one really stupid thing about filmmaking is that when, uh, cause I did not grow up rich. Um, we eventually became middle-class, but you know, we're very, we coupon cutters and you know, we were very mindful of our, our pennies. Right. So when I started getting into filmmaking, I started asking like, okay, what is, what does this cost? What does makeup cost? What does, and it was always like, well, what's the budget? Because everybody wants to charge as much as they can. And my thinking of tell me what that costs and then I can build a budget once I've tallied the costs of all these things flew in the face of, no, you raise the money and then I tell you how much I cost. Cool. like, yeah. you know, um, it's a really, it's, it's not shady, it's understandable, but it's just a shitty system. Um, but so when it came to a ghost weights, you know, once we had the money, we had the money before we had a script, I had the idea, we'd met a filmmaker, we, not a filmmaker, we'd met the investor um, trying to make another thing. And he'd been really excited and we couldn't raise enough. And he asked what was going on. And uh, I told him the idea of a ghost weights and he said, okay, yeah, that sounds really good. I can put in this amount of money. And my mom had said, you know, when you have a number, let me know. And if we can help out, we will. And I called my mom and I said, um, this, is, this is what I have. If you can match it, I think I can make a movie. And she talked to her husband. They talked to their accountant. And a couple of days later, called back and said, yeah, we'll send you the check tomorrow. Uh, and I broke down crying. And then, <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, oh man, I got to write this script. Um, and so because I knew that I didn't have, I was not going to have access to effects and everything else. It became, okay, let's write a play. Let's write a, you know, let's, let's essentially write a play that uses the tools of cinema. Um, which is like a lot of my favorite movies, like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and stuff. Like that's a great movie. That's also a great play. Um, sure, sure. Yeah, like. But it's, again, it's owning your limitations and your obstacles. It's having a very clear view of the reality of a situation and not what you wish was there. Um, because part of making something for such little, such a small amount of money um, is that, so I was in a really bad place when, we, when this started, uh, when I wrote this, um, I was at one of my lowest points um, I felt like an existential mistake and I was thinking a lot about killing myself. And I've, I've, wow. I've had a few of those moments in my life. This was probably the closest I came. Um, and then this opportunity presented itself. Well, when you're already on the ropes and you're thinking like, because part of it was just like, man, nothing works. I'm trying to get these movies made and I understand what a privilege it is to make a movie, but like, I have tried to do every other job. Like I spent my twenties, worked in politics, ran bars and restaurants, waited tables, uh, you know, did door to door sales. I was in the army for a year. Like I tried everything else and nothing worked. I was just not good at, at being a person. Um, right. And I was just like, I gotta see if I can make a movie. Cause I'm, this is what my brain does naturally. This is how it works. And if this doesn't work, I feel like I, I feel like I'm taking up somebody else's spot and I'll, I'll just take myself off the board. So when it then like, when this presented itself, the fact that we didn't have a lot of money could never be an excuse for it not being good. It had to be good. 
because I knew that I didn't have a lot of money, but money is only one thing. It's only one part of your resources. So, all right, well, let's see where we can shoot. That's, you know, um, you know, that's a cost-effective solution. And I put out the call and John Mark James said, yeah, you can shoot in my house. And like, didn't charge us a fee. I paid his power bill. But then when we had to go back and do pickups, was always so generous and patient. And I was just like, yeah, man, come on up. I'll leave it unlocked. Um, <laughs> you know, the cast, you know, McLeod deferred his payment because we're best friends and have been trying to work together for years. Natalie got paid, you know, Sydney got paid. Nobody got paid a lot, but it, I, I was also very upfront. This is what I can afford. If you're okay with this, please come play with us. If you're not okay with it, I do not begrudge you. Um, and some people did get paid because it was just friends coming out. You know, the, the movie opens with a certain shot and ends with a montage. And those people didn't get paid because they were friends that I just put a thing on social media. Hey, friends, if anybody want to be in a haunted house movie, and they'd reach out and I'd tell them when to come to the house. So yeah, like you, you, you owe a lot of favors when it's done, but like, it can just never be an excuse. You know, the movie took five years to make because I could not have an excuse. It's Pete Sampras vomiting on the tennis court. Like you have to leave every bit of yourself out there because if there's anything you hold back, if there's anything you hold back and it doesn't work, that's your, that's your, that's the thing you can hide behind. And I didn't want to be able to hide behind anything. That's great. Like, yeah, that's giving me little tingles. I can't wait to <laughs> see it now to know what's gone into it. I mean, the, the writing and the directing, I get that. That's a passion thing, yeah. but the production element, I think that's where I would just not be interesting. It sounds, it sounds like so much hard work for something Dude, that's so tedious. Yeah, that's it. It's so tedious. Editing? I edited this movie and I'd never edited anything. I taught myself to edit to do it. Uh, I, like at one point I showed my mom, I like I was visiting my mom and her husband and I was just like, hey guys, this is what editing looks like. And he just looked at it and was immediately like, nope, and just walked away. <laughs> and she's looking at it just like, oh my God, like you, like you do this all day, every day? Like, uh-huh. Yeah, now you know why when you call me sometimes I'm a little dodgy. <laughs> yeah, it's really tedious. It's also like super fun. I mean, like I, I want to put my head through a wall sometimes, but you know, then it, it clicks. I mean, you know how it is. You write like, or and, and with a podcast, like there's the fear of what if this doesn't work? And there's almost always a moment of, I'm not sure this is working, but then it does and like that is just the best feeling in the world. Yeah. But you must have felt that at festivals and things when when you're showing it and you're in a room with people. My god, that must just be dude validation. Oh boy. Paul, let me tell you. Um <laughs> when we So our world premiere was a uh, Fright Fest Glasgow. I had never left the states before this. I didn't have a passport. I had to get one in order to go to the festival. Um and again, like we we shot this in August, 2016. I started writing it in like November, 2015. I, and then not even writing it, but I like just, I had the idea in the fall and then we got the money in January and I wrote the script basically from January to August. Um, and then kept writing, honestly, to do pickups. Uh, and that's when McLeod really joined the process. But like, it was a thing on my laptop. It was a thing I was doing and I would, 
you know, I would have breakfast with my dad or I would get drinks with my friend Brian and Jen and Corey. And they would, you know, I'd give them updates, but it was a thing I was going through on my own. And then McLeod took a, a bigger hand in it and it became our thing, but I was still on my own. I was in Northern Kentucky for the most part. Uh, and then New York, I, I moved in 2017. So yeah, it was, it was a very personal thing. And when you see the movie, you'll really understand, like it's a very personal thing. Um, so when we got into Glasgow, uh, his daughter was born February 27th. So he wasn't able to go. So it was just me. And I'd never, I'd been to festivals as a journalist and I'd been as a volunteer and I'd programmed one, but I'd never been as a filmmaker. And so I fly over, I meet up with uh, Stevie Reeves who works with Fright Fest. We saw a couple movies together. I went to a filmmaker happy hour and I got there and it's just this like room of strangers. And I went and started talking to one of the volunteers because that's, I was more comfortable. I was like, I, I know what you're doing. Like, let me, you know, and I, I, I talked to him until he had to go do something. And then I just kind of talked to the nearest person and started doing that. And so, and, and, uh, and then at one point I see Aaron Moorhead and Justin Benson walk in. And I am a huge fan of those guys. I love, Spring is one of my favorite movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew that we were in the festival together. And so I just walked over I screwed up my courage and I walked over and I saw, you know, Aaron Moorhead and I was like, Hey, I don't, I don't want to bother you or anything. I just, I'm at, my name's Adam Stovall. I also have a movie in the festival and I just want to say, I'm a big fan of what you guys do. And Aaron said, yeah, Adam, we know who you are. And I was like, well, I don't know how to deal with that. So just going to check that behind me. Um, and later that night, like we're sitting in the lobby of the Novotel and he's telling me about like video projects he cut together for his family after uh, after a, a death in the family, and just like oh we're friends, like I'm now friends with Aaron Moorhead. We have each other's like we text, and I'm like well that's amazing. Um, and then the next day, Fright Fest started and their movie showed, and then I was gonna stick around for the second film, which was Death of a Vlogger, which is very good and I recommend it, um, but. Justin and Aaron were like, you should come to the pub with us. And I was like, yes, I'm going to do that. Uh, and so I'm going to go drink with the endless. Let's go. Uh, let's, let's make this happen. <laughs> so we do that. Well, the next day is when A Ghost Waits is playing. It's uh, it, That was a Friday night at 7.45. And I, I got up and I went and had breakfast. And I'm just like, just all nerves. Like just, I, I like went and found a little Starbucks to sit in because I couldn't find a non-Starbucks coffee house because uh, I didn't know Glasgow. Um, so I was like, all right, I'll just go here. And I just like sat and had some coffee and a little uh, pastry of some sort and walked around, went and saw a movie um, and then had to be at uh, Glasgow Film Theater to do a Fright Fest TV interview. And I did that. And like, I'm pretty, like, I look at it. I'm just like, I am so all over the place. Like I'm just exploding. And uh, that was over. And I had a nice chat with the gentleman that run Fright Fest. And then I went back to my hotel room and had a panic attack. And I was sitting on the couch, just having a panic attack. When uh, some festival friends I'd made, Telma and Rachel messaged to say, hey, what are you doing? Are you sitting on your couch freaking out about tonight? And I said, yes. Yes, I am. And they said, well, you should come to this bar. I said, okay, I'll do that. And so I joined them at this like Australian sports bar called Walkabout. 
which I choose to think is a Nicholas Rogue themed sports bar instead of, but whatever. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, <laughs> this is how my brain works. Uh, like everything's a movie. It's fine. Um, so got there. I sat with them and I calmed down. I didn't have anything to drink. I had Iron Brew, which is cool. The Scott, yeah. And my first Iron Brew. I was like, this is wonderful. Um, and then had dinner, filmmaker happy hour, and then the movie played went introduced the movie and then sat down i sat down right next to the exit so i could leave if i needed to but it's you know fright fest happens in gft1 which is uh, a 400 410 seat theater and i you know i i'd been walking around i sound like this so whenever i say something in glasgow people are like what are you doing here <laughs> like oh my movie's playing if you're free friday night you should come and so i walk in and the place is packed we sold out our world premiere that's great and i'm just like okay like that's don't know how to deal with that put behind me and then i sat down and 400 people laughed and cried and gasped all in the act all in the places where i, I wanted them to and then it it was done and there was this really wonderful applause and as you will see on the blu-ray I go up, Alan Jones is moderating the Q&A and he asks me how I'm feeling and I just break down crying. Because <laughs> I'm like, dude, I've been working to get here since I was eight years old. So, uh, you know, we get through that. There was, I, and I, again, I had, met, I had planned to stick around and watch the movie after mine, but Aaron Moorhead and Justin Benson were like, we're gonna go, like, we're, we're taking you out, you know, like, this is your night, come on. I was okay. So we went and it was amazing. Um, and, and then like, right, and then the world shut down. Uh, Glasgow Film Festival was the penultimate festival to have before yeah. everything shut down. So like, you know, Fright Fest brought us back for the London event that, uh, that was virtual in August. So, you know, it was cool to see on social media people, you know, really taking to it, but we didn't get to be there. And that was the case with most. I Screen Fest in October, which happens in LA. It was, um, they decided they still wanted to do an in-person event. So they did a drive-in event. And so Ooh. flew out to Los Angeles, got to see the movie at a drive-in. Like that was amazing. Um, <laughs> you know, we won some awards. Like, and, and that one specifically, I remember sitting there watching it and, and like, it finally didn't feel like a project anymore. It felt like a movie. Like, okay, we're done. This is, and we of course tweaked it a little bit more because McLeod and I are tinkerers, but it's just like, okay, yeah, no, we did, we did our jobs. You know, it's terrifying because you don't know how people, you don't know if people, not even how people will react. You don't know if people will react. You don't know if anyone's going to care at all about this. And then like they do. And I keep saying, I'm like, I hope you like it. It's fine if you don't like, I get it. It's not for everybody. Um, I didn't intend it for everybody. You know, I intended it for people who need it, uh, who need to hear what it says. Uh, I, I may have underestimated how many of us there are. Um, but yeah, like, the, and, and I mean, Fright Fest was so warm and welcoming and Scream Fest was so warm and welcoming. And then we just did Nevermore, which is a North Carolina festival. And they were wonderful. Like, everybody's great. And especially, I think, in like the horror, the genre community, uh, and and horror specifically, it's such an out it's such an outsider community that you know it's it's filled with people who grew up 
feeling othered and feeling like they were being told they were the weird ones. And then finally, like they were in a room and somebody else was like, I like your evil dead t-shirt. And they were just like, what? Love me. I love you. Come here. It's just hugs all around. So, you know, like, yeah, they just, they're very enthusiastic. And, um, and as you can tell, and almost an hour and a half into this, like, I will both talk and talk about anything. So like, if you tell me like people, cause in Glasgow, people were coming up and saying like really vulnerable shit to me. Again, that will become clear once you see I the movie. Wait. Why? Um, and I and it's just like I'm not like I'm weirdly comfortable with people telling me stuff that they would tell their ther- their therapist. Like if I'm if I'm if I'm everybody's movie therapist, I think I'm okay with that. So now the fear is, what if I can't do it again? Sure. It's so weird. I was just realizing this, but like the fear of what the anxiety, excuse me, that's a more accurate term. The anxiety of what if I never get to do this just easily ports over into what if I never get to do this again? <laughs> you, know, you don't yeah. want to get to that stage that's, oh, I have to do this again. You don't want to be there. It's not. So this is, that's a really interesting point. It's not that like, I have to make another movie because making movies is cool it's this is the thing i can do um like i said before i've tried everything else so yeah like i i I hope i get to keep directing not because i like the awards that you can see over my right shoulder Um, (laughs) oh i hadn't noticed (laughs) yeah but but more just like man i have never been happier and i have never felt more like a person uh, I finally don't feel like an existential mistake. I can sit on a train and feel like I am entitled to the space that my body takes up. And I am not in fact an infringement on everyone else around me. And as like, again, as somebody who has like been very close to suicide because of the feeling the exact opposite for so long, like that it is night and day. It is truly a heavenly time. You know, we do not like this. That this house was destined for me. They said that it called for me, that it had been waiting all of these years for me to make it complete. I know how hard it is to be alone. It might not make sense to you, but it is my purpose. It is a gift to feel so lucky to have something and to know that it is lucky to have you. Hey, thank you for listening to that. A massive thank you goes out to Adam Stovall for giving up his time for this discussion. As usual, if you do want to contact me about anything at all, I'm on Twitter. You can find me there as NotWellerPod. On Instagram, I am known as WallerNotWeller, off the top of my head. I hope that's right. You can email the show on a year in horror at gmail.com. The next year for the regular episode of the show has been chosen. It is 1973. A couple of really big hitters are in there. So if I don't see you before, until 1973, catch you later. Whatever you do.